Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's um, British Government at LSE event entitled Should the Human Rights Act be replaced with a new Bill of Rights? My name is Paul Kelly. I'm a pro-director of the school um, and involved in British Government at LSE and I'm going to chair tonight's event. We have three speakers on our panel. I'll say a little bit of introduce them first. Two home team and a visitor. Let me start with the visitor, Dr. Michael Pinto Dushinsky. Michael was, or, uh, was appointed in March 2012 as a senior consultant on constitutional affairs to policy exchange. And this role follows his membership in 2011-12 of the Commission on the Bill of Rights, a body set up by Britain's um, coalition government to provide advice on the controversial issue of reform of the country's Human Rights Act. And it was largely that agenda which caused us to think about having an event on the issue of European... Um, European Court of Human Rights, the claims of human rights through the European Court and the question of whether or not the rights that are um, enshrined there should be repatriated into a British Bill of Rights. We thought that would be a very important question for those who are interested in the current state of British government and politics. And Michael has been central to that debate over the last few years. He has a long record of frontline activism on civil rights and protecting prisoners of war against ill treatment in countries ranging from Vietnam, South Africa, and the old south of the USA. He's a political scientist who's advised international organizations, governments, and public bodies on constitutional and policy-related matters over a long, I won't mind me saying this, over a long period. He's the author, most recently for our purposes, of Bringing, Back right, or Bringing Rights Back Home, published by Policy Exchange in 2011. Uh, he was a member of the Academic Panel on Funding of Political Parties of the UK Committee on Standards in Public Life. And he's a member of the uh, Board of Directors of the International Foundation of Electoral Systems. Our next speaker... Francesca Clug, OBE, is Professorial Research Fellow at LSE, first of our home team. She's Director of the Human Rights Futures Project, which seeks to explore and analyse the future direction of human rights discourse in the UK and elsewhere. Francesca is also a member of the Advisory Committee for LSE's Centre for the Analysis of Risk and Social Exclusion. She's previously a Senior Research Fellow at King's College Law School, where she assisted the government in devising the model for incorporating the European Convention on Human Rights into UK law, reflected in what became the Human Rights Act. She's a member of the government's task force responsible for overseeing the implement implementation of the HRA. And our third speaker tonight is Professor Conor Geerty, who will be well known as well to LSE students. Conor is Professor of Human Rights Law at LSE, in the Department of Law. From 2002 to 9, he was the director of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at LSE. His academic research focuses primarily on questions of civil liberties, terrorism, and human rights. 
As soon as he starts to speak, you will realise that he was born in Ireland. (laughs) Even from the laugh. (laughs) I can say that. My surname's Kelly. (laughs) I wasn't born in Ireland. Um, He's born in Ireland, graduated in law from University College Dublin before moving to Wolfson College, Cambridge, um, to study for a master's degree and then a PhD. He became a fellow of Emmanuel College in 1983. In 1990, he moved to the School of Law at King's College London, somewhere near here, where he was first a senior lecturer, then reader, and finally, from 1995, a professor. Um, Connor is also a practicing barrister with Matrix Chambers. Um, he's advised and um, contested the views of government. He's also been a visiting professor at Boston University, the University of Richmond and the University of New South Wales, and received honorary degrees from Brunel and Roehampton University. Those are our panellists tonight, and they will be addressing the question, should the Human Rights Act be replaced with a new Bill of Rights? I'm going to ask each of our speakers to talk for about ten minutes, and then... Um, I will ask a question of them to bring together the arguments that they raise and there will be plenty of opportunity to take questions from the floor. So without further ado, can I introduce uh, or invite our first speaker, um, Dr. Michael Pinto-Dyshinsky. Thank you very much. Being between Kelly Uh, and uh, uh, Gerti. I recall a a time that I escaped, I was uh, staying at the British Embassy in Washington and was told that on St. Patrick's Day they always painted Churchill's uh, uh, bust uh, green. And so I went away to a St. Patrick's Day uh, party in Baltimore among some rather, rather low politicians and Everybody's going round saying, uh, were you born in Ireland? And they said, yes. And so I was asked, were, uh, were you born in Ireland? I said, of course. And they said, what's your name? And uh, <laughs> I said, Pinto Dushinsky. And they said, oh, well, she'd had a drink or two. Uh, that's surprising. Uh, and so I said, well, what's more surprising is that it's the most common name in the Dublin phone book. And so then, then she said, um, oh. And so I said, that's not the most surprising thing. I said, if you go to Warsaw, uh, you'll find that the most common name in their phone book is Kelly. Uh, anyway, so um, back, back to, the real, to the real world. Uh, a, a human rights academic wrote to me recently, much of the debate about human rights in Britain tends to involve different groups shouting at each other. Uh, And he's right, uh, which makes me very pleased to be here and to accept your invitation because one of the pleasures of getting involved recently in human rights affairs has been meeting uh, Francesca and Connor. Uh, And invariably, uh, we've had very interesting, informative, but very friendly Uh, and therefore productive uh, exchanges, which unfortunately are all too rare in this subject, but that makes me very pleased to be here. And all three of us, I think, share a deep commitment to human rights, and we tend to differ on how best they can be assured. Now, there is a a, a quick and clear answer to tonight's 
topic, which is whether the Human Rights Act should be replaced by a new Bill of Rights. And that is simply, it's, it's not possible to give an answer. And furthermore, it's the wrong question. Uh, uh, whether a new Bill of Rights, the so-called British Bill of Rights, should replace the existing Human Rights Act depends on what that bill would contain and on how judgments would be made. And should it merely replicate the Human Rights Act with a new title? That's a change without uh, any real uh, difference. Should it entrench the current European Convention rights uh, contained in the HRA in a new constitutional document? Should it add social and economic rights? Should it set out an order of priorities of some existing rights? Should it eliminate some of the existing European Convention rights? Should it eliminate some of the procedural uh, parts of the HRA, such as sections 3.1 or 10.2? Uh, should it alter the current system of jurisdiction over the rights so that they're judged by UK judges alone? In short, the call for a British Bill of Rights is in itself fairly, to put it polite, ambiguous. And that, of course, is precisely why it's uh, such an attractive idea to the civil service establishment and why the principle of a British Bill of Rights is likely to be recommended uh, in the coming weeks by the Bill of Rights Commission. Uh, it's capable of meaning all things to all men on the Commission, and all but one of them are men, uh, and since my resignation, all eight are Queen's Counsel. Uh, now, that's all I have to say on the British Bill of Rights, and so from that point of view, we could go home now. Uh, uh, alternatively, uh, let's turn to the real concerns of politicians and most of the public. Uh, the human rights system, which Francesca did much to create in the 1990s, has proved successful in one respect and a major failure in another. In themselves, the European Convention rights incorporated into British law, largely through her work, are widely accepted, and that is a signal achievement. The discontent centres on the greatly increased powers of judges, especially the judges of the Strasbourg Court, to interpret those rights. It's becoming obvious uh, that the human rights system, which has developed over the last past decade, and by that I mean the combination of the Human Rights Act and the ratification of Protocol uh, 11 of the European Convention, uh, which obliges us permanently to follow the jurisdiction of the Strasbourg Court, that that system is seen to be incompatible with parliamentary democracy in the United Kingdom. And so the two core questions are, first of all, at the national level, what should be the respective roles of judges and elected lawmakers in a democracy? Uh, this was a, a, a topic on which Lord Justice Laws gave a learned lecture uh, a, a few days ago. Uh, it's the right question, but the classical quotations he used and the philosophical reflections tended to mask what was, in essence, a judicial power grab. Uh, second, when an international court is given jurisdiction over nation-states, are national sovereignty and democracy undermined? After all, democracy in practice exists only at the national level. International bodies tend to be undemocratic and unaccountable. So is the project 
uh, of a 47-nation court with compulsory jurisdiction simply too ambitious. Uh, in the case of the Strasbourg judges, there currently seems to be no accepted way in which their verdicts may be overwritten, overridden by our Parliament, even in the most exceptional circumstances, uh, and that has led to the constitutional crisis we're facing in the matter of voting rights of prisoners. Uh, only today, a Council of Europe commissioner stated that Britain's acceptance of the jurisdiction of the Strasbourg Court entails the loss of only a little sovereignty. Uh, this is the classic expression of the only a little bit pregnant uh, argument. Uh, uh, just as the uh, Human Rights Act permits our Parliament to override the rulings of the UK Supreme Court, so there needs to be a parallel power of our Parliament and of other national legislatures to overrule, uh, override rulings from Strasbourg. And now you should note that in the national arena, Parliament has not chosen to overrule the UK Supreme Court on judgments under the Human Rights Act. I don't know if it's done it at all, but I, I don't recall uh, that uh, uh, it could uh, override declarations of incompatibility by the Supreme Court under the Human Rights Act, but it, it hasn't in practice done that, and the same has happened in Canada, where there's the right of parliamentary override, the parliaments tend to be very re respectful of courts. But having that right there uh, is essential uh, to make uh, the, the judgment of human rights compatible with parliamentary democracy. Now, I won't go further into the next point, which is that uh, even at the national level, uh, that the Human Rights Act is affected by the ability of, uh, uh, of the judges in Strasbourg to uh, have decisions uh, that, uh, that may, uh, uh, may rule. Uh, okay, three minutes, okay, fine. Uh, all right, well, in that case, I'll come back to that point, certainly, uh, but make one or two others. Uh, that the rule of law... Uh, which I support, is not merely a disembodied ideal. The rule of law, if we're not careful, may come to mean the rule of lawyers. Now, uh, yes, the first time I've ever used uh, oh, one of these clickers. Uh, this is an invitation uh, to uh, celebrate the remarkable achievements of Judge Bratzer, and it says champagne 6.30, chamber music 6.40, dinner 8 o'clock, sorry, 7.40, dinner 8 o'clock cost £110. Uh, plus the fact that it's been generously sponsored by Blackstone Chambers and Linklaters, Linklaters, I should say, average profit per partner of over £1 million each. Now, the reason that I say this is not only jealousy. <laughs> uh, uh, there is a, a largely self-referential legal and NGO elite it tends to show a degree of contempt for the ordinary elector, reminiscent uh, of the arguments of the mid-19th century for restricting the franchise to the well-to-do and best-informed. Lord Leicester has even used the term platonic guardians to praise some members of this exclusive club. Uh, second, we've been seeing a degree of uh, dubious constitutional assertiveness 
and even politicisation of some senior British judges. Uh, and third, uh, in, uh, yes, look at that gentleman. Uh, international, do you, you know who he is, Connor? Yeah, Dred Scott and Sanford, 1857. Yeah, Judge Taney. Yeah. Of course he knows. That, no, uh, 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 the, uh, this is a, a, a disaster. <laughs> that backfired, Michael. <laughs> well, I know, I No, no, no. I, I would never That's play that game on you. No, no. Uh, the, uh, this was a disastrous decision taken by a constitutional court uh, that actually I have more sympathy for Judge Taney than I did before uh, because it was very difficult for a court to reach any proper decision and a court shouldn't have had to reach the decision as to whether slavery should be allowed in new states. It was basically a political matter. Uh, and so I just say this by saying that we shouldn't always presume that lawyers are going to get the right answers to all questions and ought to have some caution uh, about this. And so basically what I would like to say is that precisely where and how the boundaries between judicial and legislative competence should be drawn is the real question. Uh, and I'm concerned that we have drifted into a position where the rapidly growing and arguably excessive power of lawyers and judges is threatening to undermine respect for the rule of law and at the same time to undermine democracy. Uh, now, I think I'd better end there. Uh, uh, having been told that I had longer to speak than I thought, I've added a lot of arguments. And so later on, uh, maybe we can come back to some of the points in detail. Thank you very much. I think I'm going to take a leap out of uh, Michael's, Michael's book because um, I managed to just pour water all over my sheets. So I'm not sure I can read them at all. So I think slides are much safer. Mind you, that's a little less daunting than the time when I poured water all over the person I was about to debate with. <laughs> and I think if I'd done that, maybe Michael would not have spoke so fondly of me and Connor at the beginning. So small mercies. I, Michael has just very eloquently spoken about what he, the threat to parliamentary sovereignty as he sees it from the European Court of Human Rights. And I do hope to... Uh, sorry about this, the people on the side. I'm pretty small, actually. don't get to see much of me anyway. Um, I, um, yeah, maybe you can do something with this. Um, so he's just spoken eloquently about the threat, the alleged threat to... Uh, national sovereignty by the European Court of Human Rights. And I hope that to get a chance to answer some of that in the Q&A, particularly if you all want ask us some really good questions. But on this august day, when our elected members have bravely stood up against the might of the European Court of Human Rights in their parliamentary debate on prisoners' votes, which I'm sure you've all followed today, I want to start with a major clarification, and that is that the Human Rights Act is not the European Convention on Human Rights. I had a feeling that Michael would say that we're debating the wrong question tonight, so I want to remind you what it is, and that is <laughs> we're not debating whether we should withdraw from the European Convention or even whether we should circumvent it, but whether we should replace the Human Rights Act with a new so-called British Bill of Rights, because that's what's on the table at the moment through the Bill of Rights Commission that Michael was a member of. 
It's perfectly understandable, of course, if the Human Rights Act and the European Convention have become conflated in the popular imagination. As some opponents of both, and I do not include Michael in this at all, sometimes deliberately conflate them. Why? Well, it weakens the case for each of them if they are presented as this double-headed European monster thereby deluding people that I did that okay because my daughter always said when she was little I wasn't very good at doing a monster but I just tried to be a double-headed one and I I practiced it on her this morning Um, thereby deluding people into thinking that if the Human Rights Act were repealed we'd no longer be subject to this foreign alien court but the simple truth is this if we were to replace the Human Rights Act with a new Bill of Rights we'd still be subject to European Court of Human Rights judgments, like the prisoners voting one, unless we want to be virtually the only country in the whole of Europe outside the European Convention and hence probably outside the Council of Europe as well. The Council of Europe, those of you who are politics students will know this, is not the EU, remember. It's far older and bigger and its sole purpose since Winston Churchill et al. set it up after World War II has been to protect democracy and human rights across Europe rather than the free movement of capital and labour like the EU. So if we left, we couldn't point to Norway and Switzerland as bedfellows, only Belarus. Or alternatively, I suppose we could return to the laws of Tudor England. A helpful suggestion by Jacob Rees-Mogg MP, (laughs) who recently advocated returning to the reign of Henry VIII when it was high treason to appeal to a court outside this kingdom. So if the Human Rights Act is not the European Convention, what is it? Jack Straw, the Labour Home Secretary who introduced the Act, described it as the first Bill of Rights this country has seen for three centuries. Liberty, the NGO that you'll all know of, also regularly calls the Human Rights Act the UK's Bill of Rights, and many esteemed academics and lawyers describe it in similar terms. I've even been known to do so myself, but you'll have to decide whether I come under either of those categories. Why do we call it a Bill of Rights? Well, for three basic reasons. First, because the Human Rights Act is a higher law. It's what's known as a higher law, in the sense that all other law and policy generally, in most circumstances, have to conform to it. Second, because it is expressed in broad ethical terms, unlike other more specific or technical legislation. It couldn't be a higher law if you think about it otherwise. And third, because the courts are are empowered to interpret these broad values and provide remedies for breaches of them, all the classic hallmarks of a Bill of Rights. This is not at all surprising, as the Human Rights Act was introduced following decades of debate about, guess what, introducing a British Bill of Rights. No wonder I frequently have a sense of déjà vu. What is true is that the Human Rights Act, although UK law, incorporates most of the rights in the European Convention. Why? Because the UK government has been bound to uphold these rights since 1953. And New Labour didn't want to risk opening the floodgates, as they saw it, by introducing a Bill of Rights with additional rights as well. Many prestigious and illustrious commentators have praised the rights in the Human Rights Act. Here's one quote. The Convention is a model example of a minimalist but realistic set list of fundamental rights. Michael Pinto-Dyshinsky. Dr. Michael Pinto.
Kaczynski said that. In fact, the Human Rights Act does exactly what this government recently demanded of the rest of Europe in its Brighton Declaration. Do you remember when they all went to the seaside and bought Brighton Rock recently and discussed the European Court of Human Rights? The British government passed, insisted on the Brighton Declaration being passed in order to decrease the number of cases that go to Strasbourg Court and stem their backlog and increase subsidiarity, the very aim that Michael was speaking about so well to us all just before. The Brighton Declaration insists that every country in Europe should ensure that the Convention is implemented through its own domestic law, exactly like the Human Rights Act. In other words, what makes this debate quite artificial is that the Human Rights Act provides the very subsidiarity this government is fairly calling for, which would be reversed if it were repealed. The evidence suggests that the Human Rights Act is doing just what it says the government wants, just what the government says it wants. It's reducing the involvement of the European Court of Human Rights, which is what Michael wants as well. The number of UK cases where a violation was found decreased to just eight last year. Yes, just eight. That's what all this fuss is about. Lower than in any other similar state. Now, to get back to the question we are debating tonight, let's briefly look at three main reasons commonly given for replacing the Human Rights Act by its chief opponents. First, it would return powers to Parliament. Now, I understand that argument because, like Connor, like Michael, this is what we all have in common, which is why we get on so well when we meet, I'm also concerned about a judiocracy, if that word exists. That's why I support the model in the Human Rights Act, which distinctively leaves the last words with Parliament and disallows an American-style judicial strike-down power. Now, you may say I'm party pre because I was involved in developing that model, so I'll give you another quote. It remains the case, this is from today, it remains the case that Parliament is sovereign and the Human Rights Act explicitly recognises that fact. That's Chris Grayling, our Justice Secretary. So you don't have to take it from me. But David Cameron says that even this isn't a weak enough parliamentary-loving model for him. He says he wants to introduce a British Bill of Rights because it's about time we started making sure decisions are made in Parliament rather than in the courts. All fine and dandy, perfectly reasonable argument, except this is a standard reason for opposing Bills of Rights, not for introducing one. The second main reason given for introducing a new Bill of Rights is to disconnect our courts from Strasbourg case law, an ambition that Michael was just setting out, to allow them to revert to the common law and to tighten up the language in the Human Rights Act so that judges have less room for interpretation. This is where I think our old friend Aunt Sally makes an appearance. The Human Rights Act might incorporate the rights in the Convention, but it explicitly does not incorporate the Convention case law. Our judges only have to take it into account, and on occasion they have done so and said, thanks, but no thanks. The common law is judges' law, and our courts can rely on it whenever they want. They don't need anyone's permission to do so. But the broad language in the Human Rights Act, everyone has a right to privacy, everyone has a right to freedom of expression, etc., is a basic feature of any Bill of Rights and cannot be avoided if it is to play the function of a higher law. The third and final reason for replacing the Human Rights Act commonly given with a new Bill of Rights is that it will be formally, it will be labelled British. Now, probably not formally, because this wouldn't go down so well with many people in Scotland and Northern Ireland, you might think. 
But what this means precisely is never spelt out. Just the politicians say all the time, we want a British Bill of Rights. The implication seems to be that bad people who don't play cricket, don't play by the rules, aren't very British, wouldn't be able to claim rights on the same terms as everyone else. How any one government would draft this, God only knows. Because good people like Prince Charles, British soldiers, talk show hosts, are they good people? They all claim rights under the Human Rights Act, but they do so under the same articles as bad people. So maybe it would read something like this. Everyone has a right to privacy unless they are not British, are a refugee, have committed a crime, is suspected of committing a crime, or live on a traveller's site. (laughs) In all seriousness, a Bill of Rights which excluded the unpopular would buck the trend of all post-war Bills of Rights, leading to endless breaches of the European Convention, inching us further towards withdrawal. Maybe that's the plan. What this all amounts to is that the reasons given by most of those pushing to repeal the Human Rights Act and replace it with a British Bill of Rights are some of the best reasons for not having a Bill of Rights at all. I just wish they'd come clean about this instead of sugarcoating this perfectly legitimate rejection of the Human Rights Act by calling it a Bill of Rights. On the other hand, there is support by Bill of Rights enthusiasts for a new Bill of Rights which supplements the Human Rights Act for the precise opposite reasons to the ones just given. A, to increase the power of the courts over Parliament rather than reducing the power of the courts. B, to incorporate standards in addition, but not instead of, the European Convention. And C, to extend the beneficiaries, not narrow them. One way of making sense of all this is to understand that the first group, David Cameron et al., are much more keen on the British bit, and the second group, His opponents are the true believers in the Bill of Rights bit. Unfortunately, if you put these two groups together, you don't get a harmonious policy, but a tug of war. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. I... uh... I think I'm going to waste a little bit of my time, Chair, on this whole Irish thing. <laughs> I mean, I understand why Michael is thought everywhere he goes to be Irish. Because the O is in the wrong place. Look. If you put it... You see? It's Michael O'Pint. <laughs> it's perfectly straightforward. No wonder he gets on so well with the Irish. That's Obama. 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 Oh, Obama was Irish, yeah. They're all Irish. They're all Irish. Uh, there is, there's no doubt at all, you know, there is this problem with the European Court of Human Rights. I mean, you know, and what you need to remember is when it started, it was this international tribunal, and it was supposed to uh, adjudicate on actions between states, and the idea was that, you know, these states would take actions against other states, and they would somehow or other maintain a kind of Europe free of the kind of Nazi or fascist or, for that matter, communist threat. And, That sort of would be one case every now and again. Very, very few, you know, one or two against Britain, one launched by Cyprus, one or two against Turkey. But they put in this individual application thing, and they put it in as a kind of option, and it was an option for ages, and countries didn't allow it, and Britain didn't allow it until 1966, and the French didn't have it until 1981. and, And there are none of the usual safeguards that you would expect in a constitutional court. So you have this kind of international framework with kind of easy access to the tribunal 
designed to manage situations of interstate disputes, and you have slipped into that by a kind of back door when nobody's looking, an individual right of application. So the problem is that all these uh, hundreds of millions of Europeans that there now are from the 47 countries, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, are able relatively easily compared to, say, the United States Supreme Court or, uh, to access this system. And accessing it requires to be dealt with. And, and that is a real problem. I mean, it's idiotic to deny that it is. And it's one that the court has real difficulty dealing with because uh, courts are like motorways. You know, if you, put, if you build more courts, there's more litigants. You know, I, I mean... And if you streamline the procedures and you pour in 100 judges for each country and there's thousands of, there's thousands of uh, chambers and so on, we'll all be taking cases because we know we'll get it done fairly quickly. So the answer isn't necessarily pouring money into more judges. It's a systemic problem of the contradiction between the international and the pseudo-national aspects of this court. So how are they trying to handle it? They're doing their best. They've, uh, far from... Uh, nonsensical claims by people not here, of course, about, uh, about their cracking down on countries. I think the Court of Human Rights has surrendered, actually, quite a lot of its jurisdictional uh, overview of countries because it's too busy. I'm not a bit surprised about the statistic of age. And if you look at recent cases about the principle of subsidiarity, they're now more or less saying, they're saying, look, if the, if the local court has looked at the issue, uh, we're, we're really going to take some persuading before we can actually overturn it. And so they've shifted this notion of subsidiarity from the other Europe into, into the Convention. So I, I think uh, the age of activist judicial interventions by the European Court of Human Rights are over. I don't think you're going to see much, apart from some of the universal cases. Now, uh, I have a lot of respect for a policy exchange paper that Michael, I think you were very much involved in that, uh, role, and also a lot of respect for UKIP's submission to the Commission, because they follow a certain logic, and I admire that logic. I, I don't agree with it, but I admire it. And basically, it's we need to remove the Human Rights Act. We need to remove the commitment to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, Conservative MPs just said that, is saying that in a, in, a, in a speech next week. And because we've removed the commitment to the European Court of human rights. We need to remove ourselves from the Council of Europe because the Court of Human Rights is an essential feature of it. And debatable, debatable, the policy exchange paper is good on this, but debatable, it may be untenable to maintain a, an involvement in Europe in the absence of that evident commitment to human rights manifest in belonging to the Council of Europe. And so you follow a sequence of logical positions which end up with the United Kingdom not involved in various international organizations of a European sort. And I think we should look that in the face. If that's what people want, then we should argue it honestly and not camouflage it. For myself, I'll make two points about it. One is I think it's a form of uh, juvenile nostalgic patriotism. I think this country has real trouble. I speak now, as you know, it's been brought up a number of times as an Irishman. Uh, <laughs> And your laughs reveal you all to be cosmopolitan in the true LSE sense. No Irish guffaws, which was Kelly's insinuation, of course, in a very English innuendo earlier on, which has been filed away. Uh, this country 
is kind of a very small little place that sort of sells weapons to a few countries and hopes people will come to London, and it's not important. It used to be, because through the accident of a whole variety of commercial and mercantile achievements, you, the British, basically had disproportionate access to the world's wealth. And fortunately, you don't. We don't. And there is a real sense of loss. And that manifestation of loss as a nation is in revisiting a fantasy past. And I think that's a respectable position which is wrong. In a, in a sad way wrong. In a therapeutically necessary way wrong. You know? Secondly, put out of your mind the idea that by removing Europe and by removing the Human Rights Act and all that you'll get rid of the juristocracy. You'll invite it. You'll invite it. I am absolutely with Michael, whose great contribution to this debate has been to talk about it as a confident intellectual who is not a lawyer. And I'm absolutely with Francesca on this, coming at it from a more sceptical perspective. I don't like what we saw earlier on about the Nick Bratz celebration. I take Michael's point about that. And I take the sponsorship point. But the Human Rights Act protects parliamentary sovereignty. Protects it. There are cases out there in which judges have sought to elaborate a common law principle of the rule of law which would override Parliament. Cases like, for example, Jackson, and, which is on the fox hunting uh, case. Now, uh, you mentioned John Laws, you know, with his lecture. John Laws, I think, went to university in Oxford and he studied a lot of philosophy. And he's pretty sure he knows what justice is. And moreover, he's pretty sure that given a fair wind as a judge, he would be able to be, as he think he might even have called himself on one occasion, the guardian of fundamental human rights. So we need to be quite careful, because at the moment, Section 3.2 of the Human Rights Act keeps judges under control by asserting that the Act, i.e. human rights, cannot overturn uh, Acts of Parliament. Without it, I'm not so sure. There's lots of cases. A recent one in Scotland. Judges hanker after a common law power to overturn Acts of Parliament, and lots of academics who hanker after politics but couldn't be bothered to campaign want to give them that power to follow their own predilections and call them fundamental human rights. So tamper with the Human Rights Act at your peril. The people, to be honest with you, that I don't have respect for are the Conservative parties because the Conservative Party is not being intellectually honest and that is why it cannot do this. That's why it falls apart. I think it may be true of a lot of their policies. You do need to think things through. Everything isn't just branding. Everything isn't just getting through the day. And let me explain what I mean with regard to the human rights thing. They can't work out, firstly, whether they're opposed to the European Court of Human Rights or the Human Rights Act. Every now and again, it's the Human Rights Act they can't stand. But then more often, it's the European Court of Human Rights. The Hearst case is a European Court of Human Rights case, and that's the focus of this disproportionate, to use a European term, anxiety about prisoners and voting. But equally often, it's the Human Rights Act. So you have the Commission on a Bill of Rights that Michael was part of, being told you need to consider the question of rights in Britain, you can challenge the Human Rights Act implicitly, but you have to accept the European Convention on Human Rights. So which is it? Which are they for? Which are they against? In fact, I think they're sort of against both. They don't like what the Human Rights Act represents, which to them is rights without responsibility, Every now and again, in the hands of occasional ministers, it becomes political correctness gone mad. In the hands of the Prime Minister, in an extraordinary speech to the CBI, where it appears that lawyers, judicial review, 
is the response is why we're not Britain open for business. Uh, it becomes uh, it becomes a gateway to judicial review. This is all the bluster of, of 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 people who have nothing tangible to say. And then on other occasions, it's the European Convention on Human Rights and it's the European Court of Human Rights. But follow this: they then argue the Conservative part of the coalition that there needs to be a reform to the European Court of Human Rights because of its making a hash of everything, etc., etc. And they end up proposing in Brighton, they called it the Brighton Declaration, as though it were some sort of new Runnymede treaty, that uh, the answer to the problem was to have human rights acts in all of the countries in the member states. So they ended up imposing upon themselves an obligation to have that which they deplored. Because the answer to the problem of overflow in the European Court of Human Rights is, naturally enough, is to have subsidiarity. And the European Court of Human Rights' dream is that there are 47 countries with 47 conventions in each country, and the European Court of Human Rights has little to do. That is the logic of trying to cut back on the overload in the European Court of Human Rights, but it's a logic that leads Britain to a position which, domestically, in a completely confused way, it rejects. Nonsense. And the other nonsense, the other nonsense, is the foreign ministers who wander around the world issuing big dictates on human rights, who demand that places you've never heard of should instantly take on human rights, who yield to none in their admiration for whoever they're told should be admired on grounds of their commitment to human rights, and they don't provide them at home. So you've got this, or rather they're hostile to them at home. How can it be the case, and this is another of these imperial delusions, how can it be the case that Britain can have a foreign minister who goes around the world telling everybody that they should have human rights except the only people who his government has responsibility for, who are not going to have human rights? I mean, it's just a completely unintelligible position. And so, too, is the fairly nonsensical alternative Bill of Rights. The Conservative government have a problem flowing out of their incoherence on this subject, which is they have to work out what to put in a Bill of Rights which is beyond the Human Rights Act, because, as Francesca was saying, they've created this nonsensical discussion about it. Well, what are they going to have? Jury trial? Jury trial? For what? For parking offences? Jury trial in civil cases? Well, we can't have jury trial in all cases, so we're already back to square one. We're deciding which ones to have jury trial and which not. What about... Uh, habeas corpus. Well, we can't have that because we rather like jailing people. And anyway, we already have habeas corpus. So you know what their Bill of Rights is, basically, as far as I can see? It's the right of somebody who owns somewhere to kill somebody. That's what they'll come up with. They'll come up with that sort of, if you spot somebody you don't know on your property, shoot them. And that'll be the extent of it. Now, the more dangerous thing is that they will actually produce a spurious Bill of Rights which will assert that we all have rights to various nice things, but have a saving for the economic emergency or the exigencies of the situation. And that then what will happen is we'll have an empty document which will be a branding exercise, the purpose of which will be to disguise the vast transfer of limited resources from the very poor to the rich, which is what they're really about. So I have run out of things to say astonishingly and I'm now going to stop but I'm going to suggest that there is a consistent position which is the UKIP position 
and there are inconsistent positions. I'm not talking about Labour. We could do it in the Q&A. And the inconsistent, incoherent position is the Conservative position, as a result of which nothing will happen. Because in politics, if you don't have a coherent, drilled-down, thought-through position, it's just noise. And a lot of the political leadership, I'm afraid, appear to think that noise is what politics is about. So I'll stop there. Thank you. I want to ask one question. I do, I do think that we should open this up to the floor as quickly as possible, but I do want to ask one question of all three of you to give you the sort of opportunity to, to come back briefly to, 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 to each other. Underlying the, the, the three presentations, of course, is, I guess, the problem of the politics of human rights, the, pro- the politics of the European Convention, the politics of fundamental bills of rights. And I wonder whether that problem is, is, is something that is just ineradicable. It will emerge however we try and settle this issue, repatriation, parliamentary sovereignty, European convention, any other convention of, of, of human rights. We're always going to have disagreement about precisely what they are politics gets loaded into them and it's going to appear somewhere. Now the question is where? Now we've got, we've got lots of, of, of answers to specific questions about what individual political parties are after but let me, let me just put it this way. I mean, is the language of human rights here helpful or unhelpful in terms of achieving the kinds of things that we either want to do with higher law or through the European Convention and its political history or this idea of repatriation? Is it just an unhelpful language these days? Perhaps Francesca first and then I'll bring Michael in and he can well, the human rights, the term, didn't come from philosophers or even, no. or it came from people. So, I mean, you can argue about whether it's helpful or not, but you're never going to get rid of the term, and we've seen all around the world, and Arab Spring, people come back and back to this idea. But I think, you know, what I take from your question is a, is a deeper point, which is that, you know, lawyers trying to t- try to turn this into a kind of science. What they try to do is they say, there are these rights, we'll embed them in treaties, and they'll never debate them again. They are fixed. And then you get a reaction against that. And I think this is what we all, this is a view we all share in common, if I may speak for the guys I'm sandwiched in between. Um, I think that you have to make, an, this is an argument. It's an argument that will never end. It's eternal. And it's in the nature of the human condition to argue about what we're entitled to and what we're not. What the great, the great discovery, if you like, of the European Enlightenment was that you could have this argument. Before then, rights were determined by God or by kings or by fathers in the family. They certainly weren't something you could debate and discuss and determine by human beings in their lived life. So I think the debate is thoroughly to be welcomed. And I don't warm towards this position saying this is untouchable territory. But having said that, I think you know, Connor and I were, were saying one thing in common, which is that the, the, the amount of nonsense that is talked about this is probably right up there in the leagues of nonsense talk. Uh, people, the 
basic point that I was trying to make is that the argument is, that is being made by those who are really pushing for this British Bill of Rights is actually the argument for no Bill of Rights. And I just wish they'd stand up and say that. They don't want a Bill of Rights. They also don't want to return to the common law, which is what they say. They want parliamentary sovereignty, total in red and claw. They, want, they don't want anything to stop that, their own ability to make the laws that they wish to make. And by the way, parliamentary sovereignty is a bit of a misnomer. Any politics and government students sitting here will probably agree with me. It's government sovereignty in our country. Basically, if you've got a, enough of a majority, and even if you've got a very small one, even in a coalition government, as we're seeing, you can push your way through through a three-line whip. So what we're really talking about is the power of government to determine what the law of the land is. And what you've had for at least 200 years in this country and all around the world now is a debate how much, even in a democracy, power should we cede to the executive, to the government of the day, and how, much, how is it possible to empower all ordinary people so that democracy does not just consist of a vote every four or five years. That is the universal debate. You won't stop it. And what tends to happen is that the answer becomes through mechanisms like a Bill of Rights, and so we transfer power back to the courts. And the difficulty is how do we keep people power rather than government power within that debate. But what a lot of the so-called supporters of a British Bill of Rights are saying is that there's something sort of ethereal almost about English common law. This was the great sort of better even than the Ten Commandments that came down from the ether and this Jerusalem pleasant land took hold of this incredible thing called the common law. We passed it around the rest of the world and now we have these foreigners telling us what to do. This is the nationalism that uh, Connor spoke of and I'll say why I really mean this. This is not a cheap point because the common law is judge's law. It's the precise opposite of what people who are worried, politicians and others who are worried about uh, breaches in national sovereignty. It's the precise, precise, sorry, in parliamentary sovereignty, those that worry about Parliament being limited by judges, the, the precise opposite of what they want is the reinvention and the flourishing of the common law. And I'll finish with a Thank quote from yeah. Lord Nichols, if Quick. I may. Quick. Just listen to this. Yeah. This is Lord Nichols, uh, a, a very eminent judge in 2005, who loves the common law, describing it. The common law is judges-made law. For centuries, judges have been charged with the responsibility of keeping this law abreast of current social conditions. Had the judges not discharged this responsibility, the common law would be the same now as it was in the reign of King Henry II. That's going back even further than King Henry VIII. It is because of this that the common law is a living instrument. That's exactly the same term that the European Court of Human Rights uses, which is what gets Michael so exercised. The common law is a living instrument reacting to new events and new ideas, so providing citizens with a system of practical justice relevant to the time they actually live in. That's what all law does, the common law as well. So, so the argument for the primacy of human rights is that this comes from the people and it's their claims. But who, who are the people here? Perhaps that's where I should bring in Michael to... Which, which are the people who are making these claims? Uh, well, uh, you I, answer I, as you wish. But um, I, I, I think, for, first of all, I mean, if, if I may, that uh, in their very nice way, I've been quoted and agreed with and admired for saying things I haven't said and don't believe. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, take, take uh, the compliment. Uh, so, so that. Uh, I, I mean, uh, the, my, my work was terrific because it said we need to leave the EU. Well, it didn't. Uh, we need to re remove the HRA. Well, it didn't. 
various uh, other things. Now, I, I think that uh, that uh, I don't even. I, I think the a British Bill of Rights isn't where it's at. So, in in a way, I I agree with Francesca. She is saying, well, it ought to be because it's on the title tonight. Well, blow the title. You know, let's talk about what's relevant. I mean, one of the real problems uh, with discussion, and this uh, is problem on the Bill of Rights Commission, that you get lawyers saying, well, X and Y isn't within our terms of reference, uh, and, uh, and using that as an excuse not to talk about what people really want to talk about. Uh, and therefore, I, I predict that when its report will come, people will say, yes, it's vague, it's fine, but it's irrelevant, because it doesn't go into the things that we want to. Uh, and we now need another commission to go into the things that we're really interested in. Uh, and the bit that we're interested in now, as, as it's come up, is the relationship between uh, an, an international court uh, and, uh, uh, and nation states. That is what's really new. We have had, for a long time, the, uh, the political science and constitutional questions of the relationship between judges uh, and legislators. Uh, and the whole question of separation of powers, checks and balances, has been discussed. And my view on that is that it's good there should be a separation of powers, but there should also be checks and balances, uh, which I suppose is the philosophy behind the U.S. constitutional law. It wouldn't come in here. But we've got a completely new element, which is having a court that is a 47-nation court. Uh, and, uh, and political theorists have never theorized how you can have democracy and a 47-nation court. Uh, and so that the, uh, the battle uh, of, uh, of the division of powers between the legislature uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, either legislature, executive, and judiciary is difficult enough. But when you add this international dimension, uh, we have never thought through the real practical and theoretical problems of accountability. Now, as a matter of fact, I don't, I have a lot of respect for the judges in Strasbourg, or for a lot of them anyway. There's some very wise judges and, uh, and uh, officials and others there. But they're in very much in uncharted territory because what form of accountability do you have if you're representing 800 million people from 47 countries, uh, you have the rules that each country has one judge, so that Liechtenstein has a judge and Russia has a judge, despite their slight differences in size. Uh, and Monaco has a, a judge. In fact, Liechtenstein couldn't find a judge. Uh, uh, and so they had a, a Swiss person, because it's... it's it, you don't guarantee that there will be an expert international lawyer in San Marino, although I was told that the San Marino judge uh, was one of the better judges. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but there are, they say, fine, you have accountability through the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe or the Committee of Ministers. But in fact, these are a very thin devices uh, of accountability, uh, and so we have a real, a real problem uh, of what we do. I mean, if we had a Judge Taney 
uh, and the slave decision at a Strasbourg level, what would we all do about it at the national level? And so I, I would rather see uh, this as a theoretical problem of how can you make institutions of global governance work as against our theories and realities of national democracy. Now, when that hasn't been discussed nearly enough, and that's where I think the central question uh, is, and the, the question for, uh, for academics. The other thing that I've come across, and I've, I've been actually quite worried about this, uh, and I came across it on the Commission, uh, where people said, well, actually, democracy isn't such great shakes anyway. Uh, that democracy favours majorities against minorities, all sorts of things that go wrong with democracies. And so the justification for, uh, for bills of rights and for, for judges' powers is somehow in opposition to democracy. What I believe that we need to do is to find a, a me medium ground that gives the rule of law its empire, law's empire, but gives politics empire as well. And I think that's a particularly difficult task to do internationally. Uh, and that is where I think the problem has come and where the challenge rests. It's not that I'm against rights uh, on that, but I think unless there is a last appeal in a parliament to be used very occasionally, then you can get the judges going way out of kilter on very broad matters of policy. And so we need to guard against that. And we need a lot more thinking on this. Uh, I, I don't think the thinking will come in uh, proposals for a British Bill of Rights for the reasons that Francesca has, uh, has put forward. Uh, 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 but I don't think that that is the problem. More, there was a view before the election among certain parts of, uh, of the Conservative leadership that if we have a British Bill of Rights uh, and we said that in Britain uh, we love freedom of expression over privacy, that then we'd get a bigger margin of appreciation from the Strasbourg judges. Uh, I asked uh, a very senior person in Strasbourg, uh, well, is that true? And I was told, absolutely not. It wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference. We already give the largest margin of appreciation. Uh, and so the idea of having a British Bill of Rights because somehow it would influence Strasbourg, it, it, it's not worth doing it for that. that that's a bogus uh, argument. And so we come to the real problems are these problems of democracy versus an international court. And that isn't because we disrespect the judges there. I think many of them have done an extremely good job. But it's because the whole structure is untried and is very difficult to assess theoretically. And until we've done that, the, uh, the compulsory jurisdiction to a 47-nation court is, rather, is, I think, a bridge too far. And therefore, I've proposed, uh, and I hope, that they should be just talk with the judges there of a, of a very civilized nature, which I gather from some of them uh, at a senior level that they're willing to have. Uh, and also, my idea was to have a, a parliamentary override a, 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 of last resort that would make the international system more palatable 
that by attempting to do less, you'd actually achieve more. But I'm certainly willing to have other ideas as well. But I hope that we do, in the next couple of years, have a, a civilized uh, discussion with the judges there, and we may get a bit further. Thank you. Colin. Yeah, just a very brief yeah. respond to that. I, I think, uh, I mean, this is a really important point, this about uh, accountability. I mean, Paul's question about politics, you don't eliminate politics. It's a delusion to say you do. It would also be foolish to maintain that the European Court of Human Rights is not involved in political decision-making, if by political we mean issues of vital interest to the majority, in fact, the whole community. Uh, just parenthetically, I'm rather pleased they have been in my country because they've actually reformed a lot of things that the majority would never have delivered. And so there's a practical point there to observe about the, whether you agree with the outcomes. Uh, but the accountability point uh, made by Michael is a really serious one. I mean, the, the answer, I suppose, is, well, first of all, we've made sure with the Human Rights Act that the courts couldn't override, so we avoided the Roe versus Wade, Dred Scott and Sanford risk. However, of course, we just postpone it because the declarations of incompatibility are expected to be implemented and Europe oversees that, etc. So that's long grass. One of the main ways we deal with this is by putting things in the long grass, by the way. And on Strasbourg, we have a very good example at the moment of long grass, where everybody's kind of colluding in making sure that the Hearst case never comes to a kind of crisis. So the way in which you try and resolve the political nature of rights adjudication without acknowledging its political nature is you sort of just try and delay, you know, the start of a commission which, on Michael, leads to another commission, the Hearst case, which produces another case, which leads to legislation, proposals on the last day, etc., because there is this radical disjunction between the maintenance of an idea of rights which is outside politics and the reality of the existence of rights within politics. Judges will be very nervous about the dialogue you're suggesting, Michael, because judges buy into the idea that they're outside politics, and they don't want to be drawn into such discussion. And that was a source of great conflict here with the Labour administrations after the Belmarsh detention case, where the judges refused to say what they would say would be okay, and resisted invitations from Charles Knock and others to engage in a discussion. So that's something they'll be nervous about. Well, okay, I'd like to uh, throw it open. There'll be an opportunity probably to follow up on that point, but I'd like to throw the discussion open to questions from the floor. Uh, we have microphones coming round as we're recording this. We'd like to have to hear what you say. I'll uh, identify two or three people. Um, so could you say who you are and questions rather than statements? So there's a woman in the middle there, gentleman over on, the, on my right. Yeah. And keep your hands up so I can see. Good evening, thank you. My name is Emily Riley, um, LSE alumni. Um, my question is, um, what does the argument about the lack of democrat democratic accountability of the European Court with a jurisdiction over 47 states say about the legitimacy of the International Criminal Court, which I believe has a global jurisdiction? Okay, I'll take these together and then we can answer them. So, gentlemen, over on the, my far right. Hussein Arslan, a student at LSE, studying. Sorry, sorry, uh, I'm Hussein Arslan, um, studying uh, human rights at LSE. Um, my question is: um, Do you think the HRA 98 is clear enough um, about um, the rule of law, democracy, and civic duty? Um, as you are aware, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights mentions of um, duty towards society. 
Do you think that, that you can be incorporated to the uh, HRA 98? Thanks. Thank you. My name's Melanie. I'm a lawyer. Um, I wanted to ask whether um, the people on the panel thought that the HRA was actually um, an instrument which is fit for purpose, given that the most pressing threat to democracy, i.e. the ecological crisis, the HRA has nothing to, to say about that. And recent reports in the last few weeks by PricewaterhouseCoopers, the World Bank, the UN and others have now said that it's impossible to stay within two degrees of global warming, which is considered the safe um, level for tolerable conditions of life on Earth. So, you know, is, is, in light of that, is the Human Rights Act uh, an adequate instrument? Hi, um, my name's Jack. Uh, I think it was A.V. Dice who said that the two pillars of the Constitution are parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law. I wondered whether you thought that uh, the introduction of a Bill of Rights would make the coexistence of these two principles uh, an impossibility. Michael, do you want to start Actually, uh, with that one first? Uh, yes. Uh, I, mean, I, I think that uh, I, I have much more sympathy with the HRA if it was freestanding uh, because it does have uh, the Canadian ability of Parliament then to, uh, uh, to ignore a declaration of incompatibility uh, uh, and so uh, I, I actually don't have that uh, problem uh, the problem I think comes uh, uh, and Professor Anthony Bradley has gone into this that, that if, say, somebody loses, uh, sorry, if, if somebody wins before the courts uh, and, the, and the courts issue a declaration of incompatibility uh, which Parliament doesn't want to follow, they just go to Strasbourg and Strasbourg rules against Parliament and therefore Parliament can't really exercise the powers that it has under the Human Rights Act and therefore while while the Human Rights Act uh, is chained to the European court system, uh, then parliamentary sovereignty is, in Professor Bradley's words, mortally wounded. But it's because the two of them uh, go together. Uh, do you want me to answer any other questions, or would you go to the others to answer those? Oh, do, you, do you have anything to say? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll whiz through them, and then yeah. I'll... Uh, Emily... Uh, absolutely spot on. That's one of the problems. Uh, not just the ICC. What about the International Court of Justice? What about world trade? What about border disputes? You know, the international system is designed to deliver outcomes to conflicts between states, which outcomes are delivered by judges, and then the states have international obligations to implement them. Uh, the complication with the Convention, as I said at the start of my remarks, is that individuals kind of sneak into this system and avail of it. So it's a problem. It's a problem. We're not used to it. Hussein, uh, the Human Rights Act, I think, is clear about the rule of law and democracy. I don't think it's clear about civic duty. It doesn't set out to say anything about civic duty. And one of the difficulties with the uh, designing of a new Bill of Rights has been a hankering after having a Bill of Rights and responsibilities. And that's a separate discussion, which I know Francesca knows a lot more about than me. Uh, Melanie, it's fit for its purpose, but not for the purpose to which you refer to. It's fit for the purpose that it delivers, a balance on Jack's point, between parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law. It, I think, I was thinking when you were talking about it, I think it's neutral 
on the greatest challenge that we face today, uh, but it certainly doesn't say anything of any interest to it, on it. Jack's balancing of parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law, I think the Human Rights Act gets it right, you know, it's worth repeating, this idea that you can have a judicial intervention which is not enforceable is a nice trick, which is why I think the Human Rights Act ultimately works. But it all, therefore, follows what's the enforcement mechanism for a Bill of Rights, you know, and that's where you'd work out where the balance is. Is it just directive principles, or is it a Supreme Court-type entrenchment? And that would give you your answer, not the term Bill of Rights alone. Yeah, I think, Jack, you've had a good uh, answer from these guys, so I'm going to take the others in reverse order. Melanie... No, it doesn't say anything about the ecological threat that we're all facing, but uh, I'd worry about if it did, because I think there's a room for politics. I think that's what we, I was trying to say earlier. I think you know, law has its place. I think bills of rights have their place. I think they're there to protect uh, fundamental rights that can easily be expressed in law. I think that when it comes to the ecological threat, that's something every single one of us has to address in our own lives. So although I can see how the Human Rights Act could be added to to address some of those issues, and indeed the European Court of Human Rights has been used, in fact, to address some environmental questions, and I don't know if you're aware of that, it has, I think it only goes so far and should only go so far, personally. Um, your question about, uh, I just want to relate to ask, answer the civic duty part of your question. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as you said, refers to duties. In fact, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights should be called, in my view, the Universal Declaration of Human Values. I think it's a misnomer, and it's a declaration. It's an attempt to try to take stock of where the world was in 1948 when it was drafted and say, what is it about the human condition that is essential and part of what makes human beings survive and flourish is that they respect each other, that they live in communities, that they're not isolated individuals in the classic uh, enlightenment mode. It moved on, it was a deep philosophy and it's hugely important, but I don't think lists of duties belong in bills of rights. I think the duties exist in the criminal law and in a whole range of other laws. So I think it's the difference between a declaration and a legal enforceable Bill of Rights like the Human Rights Act. But it's, it's Emily that I mainly want to respond to because I think it's time that I took these two guys on. And I suspect quite a few people in this room are thinking, why isn't she saying anything to them? Because actually it's a bit of an Irish conspiracy here. You know, <laughs> there was this kind of pretense. I mean, Michael was convinced that, you know, it'd be me and Connor versus him. I knew it wouldn't be. I knew they'd be disagreeing and I'd be sat in between them and they'd be just exchanging different views about the illegitimacy of the court. So I want to say something about the international system and why I am personally, as a, not as an academic now, but as a, as a citizen, as a human being, deeply committed to it. Because I understand all the arguments about illegitimacy and I've explained that I'm one of these anti-judiocracy people. I fear the rule of judges taking over the capacity to be thinking political people. It can go too far. But we have to remember where this came from and what it's achieved. I just refer to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The thing about you know, we've seen it just now with Gaza. Well, when you think about what the Second World War did and all that led up to it, it wasn't just the war. The, the world had, 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 virtually got, had virtually gone into complete meltdown. And when those things happen, people take stock. That is the one positive element of major catastrophes. And part of taking stock was to accept that there can be a limit, not just to this question of internal parliamentary democracy, but what, how we operate in a world of human beings through our nation states. And that left alone, nation states can actually carry out the most horrendous 
terrors and murders of their own people. And so the, the human beings of this world, partly through their state delegates, but make no mistake about it, if, if you don't know this, it was NGOs, it was ordinary people who had to lobby hugely to persuade America, Britain, France, Russia to sign the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, to have any human rights mentioned in the UN Charter, let alone the European Convention and the international treaties that are enforced by, by law that you refer to the International Criminal Court as one of them. The lobbying came from below. The states responded to that lobbying. And what this is about is a whole mechanism of protection for basic human existence, which we created and which we can knock down like a pack of cards. And my biggest problem with what Michael is saying, and he knows that I have this huge disagreement with him, is that he is beginning to unpick, and those in Parliament today who are with them, they are beginning to pick, unpick this settlement that is only 60 years old. And I think the world will be very much poorer for it. It's easily done, but we may deeply come to regret it. Let me bring in some more questions. Michael will obviously want to come up. I'll take you three in the middle. Um, and we'll, I, I see there are others who have got their hands up, but let's take these three quickly. Yes, my name is Daniela Naj. I'm a lecturer at the University of Westminster. Thanks for a very engaging debate. Um, yeah, it's, it's really more a comment, uh, but I'd also be interested in your opinions, of course, in terms of what I find very unfortunate about this whole debate around human rights at the moment is that we always focus on... on, on um, on, on sort of the human rights awarding too many rights to certain people we don't like, um, such as prisoners or such as, you know, undesirable people like terrorist suspects and so forth. But we never talk about the fact that the Human Rights Act itself is actually a very narrow piece of legislation. It, it doesn't incorporate Article 13 of the European Convention on Human Rights. It doesn't incorporate Article 1. So it is, it is very narrowly drafted. And I also find that absent from this whole discourse is any discussion of the inclusion of broader rights, such as socioeconomic rights, um, um, uh, uh, rights that you know would potentially make a serious difference to, to people's lives. So, so there's, there's very much a focus on civil and political rights at the expense of socio-economic rights, which I think is very unfortunate. And I wonder if, if you had any comment on that, on, on whether anything is being done um, in the background to maybe, uh, rather than narrow the Human Rights Act, actually expand it in order to reflect some of these second-generation rights. Thank More you. human rights. Good. Next. Um, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Paresh Kafrani, and I'm a lecturer at Westminster as well. <coughs> I'll be sharing my colleague's oh, sentiments. <laughs> I'll share my colleague's sentiments. Thank you very much for a lovely... Question, please. Okay, sure. um, essentially, just to get to a uh, cut to the question, yeah. I think, of course, sovereignty lies at the heart of this, and essentially I don't see that if it were to be replaced, if the Human Rights Act were to be replaced by a Bill of Rights, that we'd escape from that sovereignty question. It would arise whatever form of legislation there was. Which begs the question, the hypothetical question, could this be resolved by a codified constitution? So taking the argue, argument much wider, rather than a Bill of Rights, a codified constitution which clearly set out the relationship between a Bill of Rights, the court's powers, and, Parliament, and Parliament's powers. Codification. Let's take the gentleman on the side here, because I don't want to have the entire department from Westminster asking <laughs> This is LSE speaking. Hello, Please. Good evening. My name is Philip Price. I'm a passionate European and a long-standing member of the UAC's organisation. Um, I'd just like to know whether the modern jurists, the modern politicians, the UKIP members, I wonder if you've ever read the transcripts of the trials of, for example, the Kreischer Circle members who were brought before the People's Court process in Berlin 
in the 1940s. Perhaps then, they might, if they read those transcripts of those trials, they might jolly well understand the raison d'etre behind the setting up of the Council of Europe. They might understand the setting up of the Council of Europe. Is, that, the, is that the question you want to ask? Yes, that, uh, we, we don't have a lot of time, and I'd like them to answer. And the European Convention. Yeah, thank you. So have they read that? Thank you. Um, uh, can I ask whether, uh, on the question of accountability in the 47 states, is it not the case that um, the human rights are meant to represent the rights of all the humans within the 47 states? And on that basis, it is possible to have that without the obvious accountability because it spans not just the people in the 47 states but people all around the world. And that protects people against people like um, Judge Taney and, in fact, the president who was backing him at the time. And, in fact, this, uh, Dr. Jushinsky's, uh obsession with parliamentary sovereignty shouldn't be followed because that's what we all want to do, but not what we should do. So the question is, is it possible to have the 47, uh, all the 47 states all working together on the basis that are contained within them are, are all humans rather than different nationalities? Do you like that? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I suppose I'd like to take from first from Emily's question about the International Criminal Court and then, uh, and, and then the question of, uh, 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 of Philip... Uh, price about the Chrysler circle uh, uh, via the, the uh, what Francesca has got to say. Uh, uh, I think that uh, first on the question of the uh, of different courts, uh, I'm not. I have some doubts about the International Criminal Court uh, as as an instrument, uh, which I can speak to you about. Uh, afterwards. But I think the the general point is that international organizations, uh, sorry, courts, have worked well, as far as I can see, under two circumstances. One is where the parties agree to go to the court. In other words, some kind of arbitration uh, that comes, and they both accept uh, that this is better than going to war, let's go to to a group of arbitrators. And that, I think, has worked. Uh, and second, where there is some narrow focus, like a trade organization or something that, uh, that goes on that, possibly a criminal court would come into, uh, uh, into that, but I'm not, uh, I'm not sure. When you have an all-purpose court uh, that, that really takes over every law in every country, uh, which we do because every one of our laws has to be measured uh, uh, for its compatibility uh, w- with, the, uh, w- uh, with the convention rights, you're, you're, you're doing something very much broader, and therefore we are in new territory. So whether the international law frameworks, which have worked in economic uh, circumstances and in various forms of arbitration, can be stretched so much, I think is a, is a real question that needs to be asked further. Now we then come to the question of ideals uh, and what, what comes behind this is the Holocaust and we're talking about aspects of Nazi Germany here. Uh, I must admit that the one remark uh, and I've been fairly tolerant of remarks that I've, uh, I've found it rather difficult to bear were remarks on one block criticizing me for mentioning the Holocaust and mentioning the fact that I am a Holocaust survivor uh, who 
very narrowly escaped with my own life in a deal with the Nazis in which uh, most of the people in the camp uh, with me weren't so lucky. So I take this extremely seriously. Um, I, I can understand that the European Court of Human Rights was set up for certain ideals. But I really don't think that if we're talking about protection of people in any real sense, I mean, the League of Nations was set up for similar ideals. And these international ideals, when they don't give concrete protections, are worse than useless. I mean, uh, in many ways, the idealism of the 1930s, of wanting to have collective security, was what enabled Hitler to become so powerful. Uh, I mean, it's been organizations, either nation states, that have, in alliance, have really been determined to resist tyranny, uh, or organizations like NATO that have been military alliances that have given protection. Uh, ideals are great, but when you're faced with the kind of tyranny that the Chrysler Circle were against, uh, I don't think that an international court would have really been taken too seriously by Adolf Hitler. Thank you very much. Francesca, can I just steer you to one question in particular? Well, HRA, too narrow. Not enough rights. I, I, I hope to address that earlier when I said that there are a group of people who are calling for a Bill of Rights with additional rights. They mean it when they say a Bill of Rights. They don't use it as confection. Um, given that the push for a Bill of Rights is coming from those who don't want a Bill of Rights at all but are using it in order to, rather like you know, when the big bad wolf dressed up as grandmother, in order to encourage people who believe in human rights to support them, um, I don't think that it's remotely on the table. I think Actually, we're in a period of retrenchment when it comes to economic and social rights. And I don't think they're going to be furthered through a Bill of Rights at this point. I think they're going to be furthered through protest, through argument, uh, through exposure in the media. And I think that's the way to go at the moment. But I hope you'll just let me address one other point, please, Paul. Um, I just want to, I feel I do want to address your point, Michael, just now because it's so important and because it plays to the many of the questions we've just had. Um, I have to say, I don't think, I do, I, I am sympathetic with your point that if the European Court of Human Rights was like the League of Nations, that it actually can be counterproductive. But I think the protests and the disquiet with the European Court is precisely because it's so effective, not because it's so ineffective. At the moment, there is legislation, for, for example, in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, which does not allow Romas and Jewish people to stand for election. The European Court of Human Rights has declared that to be a breach of the Convention, and they're fighting it out with the Parliament. If you accepted parliamentary sovereignty, those two groups of people, historically persecuted by the Nazis, would still be excluded in Bosnia-Herzegovina today. And as I'm going to be told to be quiet, I have a whole list here of very significant changes. I understand I'm being told to be quiet. Um, a, a very significant changes that the European Convention has brought about. Thank you, Fritz. Somebody on the panel has to get the last word, and, and, and okay, I'll, that's I'll, going to be Carlos. I'll be really quick. I mean, Danielle, thank you for that. It's really sometimes offensive to me that we talk, not us, but the whole culture is about this Human Rights Act when there's this 
incredible divisions in equality and when there's this campaign against the poor in this country. And I'm with Francesca. The answer is in the Human Rights Act. The answer is actually utilising those international frames that we already have, which say that this country is in violation of social and economic right guarantees and doesn't give a damn. There's a Convention on the Rights of the Child that they are absolutely willfully ignoring. They're redefining poverty to make sure that poor people don't figure on our radar. They're actually refusing to take seriously equality guarantees. Now, what we are doing here about it is, on the 1st of March, come to this room, we are putting austerity on trial for breach of international human rights as part of the LSE Festival, because we think, like Greece, which is trying to bring the European Union before the International Court, we need to get people to see that human rights, important though the Human Rights Act, is also about actual decent lives. And this government, in its declaration to go for a Bill of Rights, is masking its savage attack on most people. It's an incredible thing. On Kreshkanan, the codified constitution may be, you know, maybe we could have that a kind of people's thing, and that's a form of long grass, really, a kill Brandon solution. But it might work. Maybe Labour will come up with something like that. Philip, on the 40s, one of the things we do, I think, is we, we, we are absolutely clear about the past and we're not nearly as certain about the present. The government wants to have a law which allows the courts to be told to have secret proceedings where the allegations are of torture and where, therefore, the government can ensure that nobody knows even that these facts have been mustered in court. Now, that has been, re- has been declared to be compatible with the Human Rights Act by our colleague, Lord Wallace. I don't understand that. And that's a fear I have, which is that the Human Rights Act thing is going to be actually used as a kind of piece of sticking plaster to cover up really quite offensive conduct, which is nothing like what you referred to yet, and nothing like what Michael suffered, but could become so in, in, a, kind of, in, a, in a disturbing way. And final, final point. Humans around the world, I didn't catch your name, but humans around the world, one of the great things this human rights thing has done is it has actually taken this notion of the universal human seriously. And the British are furious because they never understood that the Human Rights Act could apply to Johnny Foreigner. Because I end where I went. The single, they like going around the world. They, do, they want to cut all the services for the poor, and they want to destroy youth services, but they have enough money for these aircraft carriers and all these military to wander around the world in this delusional vision of an imperial country and to do a little bit of torture here and a little bit of killing there. And they are being caught out, and their own brutality, their own people, dying in tremendous heat, unprotected, etc., is being caught out through the wonderful extra-jurisdictionality of the Human Rights Act, and it's a singularly good reason for supporting it. Well, we really are out of time, so I will just wind up by thanking our panel tonight, Connor, Francesca, and Michael, for what I think has been... Uh, challenging and um, a most interesting debate that we will probably continue in various ways at the school for a very, very long time. So thank you to the audience for your questions and your patience, and we look forward to seeing you at the school again at other occasions. Thank you. Thank you.